All right, so we have <coughs> the Protestant Reformation. Call it the PR. And <coughs> really out of the Protestant Reformation, there's three, three major groups that rose up. Interestingly, more or less at the same time in history, without unduly influencing each other. So we, we've grown up in a culture and environment where we are so influenced by what takes place around the world and we know what's happening around the world within moments. But you've got to kind of go back in time 500 years and think about the lack of global communication and networking. And yet, I, I, I just think it's a testimony to God's grace that in different cultures using different personalities in different circumstances, reformation was sweeping across Europe. So we've talked about, we've spent, I spent at least two weeks talking about Lutherans, really is what we're talking about. Martin Luther, his beliefs, all the <laughs> religious and cultural events that gave rise to him being kind of the first out of the gates as a reformer. So he, he, he created what we now call or he and his followers created what we just now call Lutheranism, right? So that's like a major branch of Protestantism. Now, there's two other major branches of the Reformation. So here we have Lutheranism. The second major branch is the Anabaptists. And we'll discuss them tonight. And then the third major branch is the Reformed or Calvinistic movement. <clears throat> so those are the three main branches, Lutheranism, Anabaptist, Reformed. There's no pure form of any one of those. There was different subgroups that rose up. But those, just to help you to think about this historically, Protestants fell under three major categories. People who were influenced by Luther, people who were influenced by the Anabaptists, and the Reformers. Now just very broadly speaking, very broadly speaking, I, I think the number one blessing and benefit of this group is a re-emphasis and a rediscovery of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. But where this movement, in my view, fails is it didn't sufficiently separate politics from religion, the church from the state. It didn't emphasize individual discipleship. It didn't emphasize the soul, the heart enough. I mean, Luther can only do so much in one life. The Anabaptists did that for us. So the blessings, that, broadly speaking, each movement has its flaws, but the Anabaptists focus on radical discipleship and Christian living and Christian holiness. They also had some doctrinal emphases which we value. The Reformed Calvinist group really was quite helpful in emphasizing the sovereignty of God over all things. That God's still on the throne, he's still in control. Okay? Now, I, I'm just going to guess that if you come from a church somewhat like ours, or you go to this church, <clears throat> Dated, the day-to-day -day life or teaching of this church is probably more influenced by these latter two groups. And we, of course, value, benefit from 
the emphasis on justification from this group. But functionally, we look more like a combination of these two groups. Now, some of you may come from Reformed churches. Some of you may come from Anabaptist churches, so you have more of those elements in you. Lutheranism is not as common or popular in Canada, but I know some, I met a lady today that said she came from a Lutheran background. So, three major groups, Lutherans, Anabaptists, Reformers, or the Calvinists. So we're going to talk about the Anabaptists tonight, and uh, this, this is an interesting group, and there's just, a, there's just a lot of value and benefit in what they offered to the church and the individuals that really started this movement. So Anabaptist basically means rebaptizers. And this started off as a pejorative, does that mean negative, term <clears throat> that was given to them by other Protestants. Keep in mind, Protestants didn't always like Protestants. Is that a surprise to anybody here? Okay. I'll share an example tonight of at least one example of where Protestants put another Protestant to death that didn't fall into one of their three camps, right? Or fell into the wrong camp. So this was a negative term given to early reformers who believed in believer's baptism. Now I'm going to make a clarifying statement here because it drives me nuts when people think these two are the same. Adult baptism is not taught in scripture. Believer's baptism is. <clears throat> Believer's baptism. Infant baptism is not taught in scripture. Okay? We know that's not taught in scripture. Some people build an argument for it thinking that it's a replacement for the Old Testament rite of circumcision. Those are covenantalists. Adult baptism is sloppy language that is often used in our churches. But really, to be more accurate, hey, the Sean says you're back. Did you have a good time in Europe? Did you learn anything about the Reformation? You did? He's still kicking, eh? Okay, excellent, very good. So adult baptism, I, I know we, what we mean by that as believers, but... I don't, I don't like it because you can be 16, you can be 15, you could be 12, you could be 10 and be, have as much belief as I do. So let's just be accurate with our language. We're talking about believer's baptism, okay? So that was the fight. Not adult and babies, believers and unbelievers. So we have believer's baptism. The Anabaptists started to practice rebaptism. They didn't like the term rebaptizer because they said we weren't actually baptized legitimately in the first place. So we're not going to acknowledge infant baptism. So it's not really that we're being rebaptized, that we're being baptized for the first time. So that was their view. You probably heard the line you have more chance of finding a unicorn in the scriptures than infant baptism, right? That was like their view. So these folks primarily arose in and around Switzerland, France, not so much in Germany. So we're going to go to Zurich, Switzerland, 
and we're going to start off in the year 1525. We're going to kind of jump forward and back, forward and back. So 1525, as we've already noted, we have Zurich. The governing authority in Zurich was the town council. And it wasn't like City of Windsor council meetings. We were dealing with bylaws and zoning. They have comprehensive authority over everything, including the religious life of the people. Now, Zurich, in 1525, discovered that two individuals, one by the name of Conrad Grebel, spelt this way. If you've ever been to University of Waterloo, there's Conrad Grebel College, right? And another individual by the name of Felix Manns. Guess what they were doing? This is shock. This is totally disgusting. I mean, these guys should be put up against a wall and shot. They were holding Bible studies. Can you imagine that? Everybody say, oh. good. So they were holding Bible studies, and the town council found out about this and ordered them to stop holding Bible studies. You've got to go back in time, people. This is a different time, different culture. You weren't allowed to study the Bible by yourself. This wasn't allowed. So Conrad Grebel and Felix Manns were ordered to stop holding Bible studies. In addition to that, parents were ordered to baptize their babies or risk excommunication and banishment from the whole territory. So again, different time, different place, different context, religion and politics. It's all the same. There's, no, there's not two umbrellas. It's one and the same. So as... Reformation started to take place. These Anabaptists were like, we're not baptizing our babies. Town council finds out, you better do it, or you can get out of town and get out of the whole territory. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Another key figure is a, a man by the name of George Blowrock, spelt like this. And he was a converted Roman Catholic priest, so he converted to Anabaptism. He met with Grebel and Manns and a bunch of believers and felt that he needed to act upon his beliefs. So he asked Conrad Grebel to baptize him as a believer. And he did. And then he went on to baptize the other believers in the room and that really was we could say the birth of anabaptism where these believers who had been baptized as babies in the roman catholic church because that's what every european was expected to do they were now baptized as believers in the lord jesus christ and so anabaptism was born in that movement so today Anabaptist groups include Mennonites, the Swiss Brethren. And we're going to look at each of these groups, out of whom came the Amish. And you may have heard of 
the Hutterites. Usually they're on the news because they have a lot of genetic issues because of um, founder effect, which is when you have a large people group or ethnic group with a very small number of founding descendants, you tend to bring in a lot of genetic problems. Like all Hutterites, pretty much every one of the 50,000 Hutterites that live in North America today are descended from 400 people that came here not too much more than 100 years ago. So they have a very high birth rate too, if you can tell. So these are all Anabaptist groups. And then there's various subgroups, but they all kind of fall under this main heading. And we're going to discuss each of those. Distantly related groups to the Anabaptists include Quakers and Baptists. And Baptists in particular tend to overlap. They kind of take some from Anabaptism and some from Reformed Calvinism and blend it together depending on the Baptist group and their, their history and background. So we're going to talk about some, some of the details and historical happenings, and then I want to highlight as we talk through some of this material major beliefs that are really important to Anabaptism. Obviously, we already know one of them is believer's baptism, but there's, there are other beliefs that they valued very much as well. So Anabaptists championed, unlike Luther. So we've got Anabaptists. This is unlike Luther. Several things. Number one, separation of church and state. How many of you, show of hands, are familiar with that lingo? If you're living in North America, it's part of the ethos of Canada. It's part of the Constitution founding documents of the United States of America. This is huge. The state is not the church. The church is not the state. We've grown up in that environment. We've grown up in North America. For so long, we think that's the historical norm. No. In Europe, that just wasn't even conceived of before the Reformation. Luther was not particularly interested in a separation of church and state. That's why Lutheranism today is still a state religion in Germany, funded by the German taxpayers. It doesn't happen here. Luther was chums with the German princes and to a large degree was successful in propagating his beliefs because he had political allies in the form of the German nobility. That's why he spoke against the peasants' revolt. <clears throat> Politically, okay, great men often do very bad things when they're looked at through the lenses of history. Uh, politically, it's far enough back, it should, shouldn't hurt too much. Um, so politically, he was able to get a lot of success because he had the government on his side. And while there was persecution and death threats and stuff coming out of the Vatican against him, really the local rulers weren't too much of a problem for him with the exception of the Roman emperor, Charles. But Anabaptist groups were in a different situation. 
So separation of church and state. Now we see this in virtually every Protestant denomination today, and we also see it increasingly in Roman Catholic churches in countries where there is a separation. They're like, okay with that. Obviously, some groups take it to the extreme, like the Amish, where there's a separation of church and state, and there's a separation from everybody, period, right? So the Amish take it to the extreme. As we consider Anabaptism, another major aspect of their beliefs is really, we'll just call it like an eschatological, eschatological vision. Meaning, let's live for the next world. Very much of a focus on the eschaton, the future, instead of the here and now. So they, you'll notice in Anabaptist groups, they're not as interested in changing political structures as Lutherans might be or other state religions, including the Roman Catholic Church or Anglicanism, like the higher, the high, high churches we call them. Anabaptist groups tend to focus on heaven hell, the next life, the future. And you'll notice a lot of those elements being uh, laid out even in our preaching ministry here. We're living, for, we're living this life. We acknowledge it's a blessing from God. But really we're thinking about the future, the next life, the life that is to come. That's another blessing that really comes to us, I believe, through the Anabaptists, not predominantly through the Lutherans which really wasn't something that Martin Luther got around to thinking a lot about. Or maybe he just didn't value it, I'm not sure. As I mentioned earlier, Anabaptists was, were, were given their name by their opponents. Again, initially resisted it, but what it tells us, third major tenant, I've already mentioned this, is believer's baptism. So, you really can't call yourself an Anabaptist if you practice infant baptism. You can do that in a Lutheran church. You can do that in the Anglican church. You can certainly do it in the Roman Catholic church. But Anabaptists all, without exception, regardless of the group, practice believers' baptism. Now, their definition of a believer, fast forward 500 years, may be different than ours, but their notion of what a believer is shapes whether a person is permitted to be baptized. Some groups put ages on it. You've got to be a certain age or whatnot. But the point is, it's believers' baptism. So that's another major tenet. Fourth, they stressed, and they didn't all use this language, but I'm trying to give you language that captures <clears throat> the essence of it. Making a personal decision to follow Jesus Christ. I know that if you come from a Reformed background, personal decision isn't great language because it, tends, it, it, it can imply like excluding God from election and calling and all that kind of stuff that Reformers hold dear. But the point is, is as, as they understood it, is it's not your parents making the decision for you. It's not the state making the decision for you. It's not your culture making the decision for you. It's not your ethnicity making the decision for you. At some point, you need to put your faith in Jesus. So they didn't assume, as some covenantal groups coming out of the Reformed tradition do, that 
well, your house is kind of guarded based upon the fact that your parents are believers and therefore you're sort of under the covenant until you make a decision. No, you have to make a personal decision for Christ. So this would also be where churches like ours would historically be a little more lined up with the Anabaptists even than we would with the Reformers who tended, tended as a group with exceptions, to believe in what we call covenant theology, which is you're sort of covered under the faith of your parents if you're raised in a believing home until such time as you make a decision for yourself. Now, one could say that, broadly speaking, while these have definite, especially this one, definite doctrinal implications, so we're going to speak generalities, right? We do that when we're talking about history. That the number one benefit that we gain from Lutheranism is reformed doctrine. But from the Anabaptists, we gained a reformed lifestyle. So again, one stressing more doctrine, reformation of doctrine, but Anabaptists really stressing reformation of lifestyle. And then out of, out of those groups, a lot, of, a lot of history and a lot of tradition, even up to the present, as to what that lifestyle looks like, to the point that some of them have taken it to some extremes. So, I mean, now the list is extremely long of what a true believer looks like in terms of lifestyle. So, unfortunately, over the, time, over the centuries, a lot of Anabaptists really have gone back to where they started. And they're more works-driven in terms of their understanding of how a person gets to heaven or attains salvation. So, what did Lutheranism maintain? Lutheranism maintained state connections. They maintained state funding. Uh, they maintained ordained clergy. Now, other groups did ordain, but they tended to set the bar an awful lot higher, and they tied it more directly to your education than a lot of Anabaptist groups wanted, wanted to. So it's not even uncommon in Anabaptist churches today to have uh, ordained clergy with no formal theological training. And the, the, the basic driving force behind Anabaptism was they wanted to maintain or go back to their understanding of like an early church form of Christianity. And they emphasized then radical discipleship. Radical discipleship. So now we need to talk about some key players and key movements under the umbrella of Anabaptism. So we're going to start with a fellow named Ulrich, and if you want to say it properly, Zwingli, okay? Or we can just say Zwingli, because we're kind of anglicized. And he lived from 1484 until 1531. Yeah, 1531. So, Ulrich, or... Sometimes it's pronounced like an H and there's a Y in there. Zwingli. So, 1519. So when did the Reformation start? 1517, so 500 years ago. So two years after that, in 1519, Ulrich Zwingli becomes a priest. And in Switzerland. And he begins 
to preach as a Roman Catholic priest from the Bible. Pretty shocking, eh? So he's preaching from the Bible. Well, as he studies the Bible and preaches the Bible, this leads to Reformation in Zurich. Now, I find it interesting just to think about the modern-day state of Christian movements and then to compare them to what we're reading was going on 500 years ago. And really, not, not a lot has changed. Like in most Protestant churches of a, an Anabaptist or a Reformed tradition, you're going to go to church and someone's going to open the Bible and actually teach it to you. It's going to be hit and miss with the Lutherans. If you're in a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, you're going to hear the Bible preached. If you're in what's called an evangelical Lutheran church, which is not evangelical, you're not going to hear the Bible preached, really at all. Um, but definitely in Anabaptist churches and in Reformed churches, you're going to hear the Bible preached. But you're, if you go into a Roman Catholic church, you're not going to hear the Bible preached. I went to a Roman Catholic high school, went to a Roman Catholic university, I went, I've been to Roman Catholic masses, the Bible's not preached. Okay, so those things that were taking place 500 years ago really are kind of still taking place today. So it's, it's a very different perspective on the church. So if you are, if you have like no exposure to the Roman Catholic church, it's just like, how could you even have a church without the Bible being preached? But if you're from a Roman Catholic church and you come here, it might be kind of shocking. Like, why is this guy spending so much time teaching the Bible? This is just not, I'm not used to this. So we have a very deep divide between most Protestant groups today and most Roman Catholic groups and even Eastern Orthodox as well. And that's really going back 500 years. Mm -hmm. What does that mean that they're not preaching the Bible? The, Rome, the Roman Catholic? Yes. So they're focusing on the Mass. They're focusing on sacraments as a means of dispensing grace to the participant. No, they don't. No sermon in Roman. No. No, there's no sermon. There's a spiritual talk. There's a homily, right? But there's no, ex there's no exposition of Scripture. There's Scripture readings, right? In fact, the Scripture is read more in a Roman Catholic Mass than it is in a Protestant church. But exegetical exposition of the text, that's not going to take place in the Roman church. It's not even taught. I had a good friend. He's dead now. He was a Roman Catholic priest. He wasn't even taught that. It's just a very different way of doing things. Well, it's a reflection of your personal thoughts and pastoral take on things, and you're making comments in the text, but that's not biblical preaching. You're not opening the Bible and explaining line by line the meaning of the text and helping people to understand the text and then offering a sermon in that respect. There's a tip of the hat to the Bible, but there's no exposition of the text. And the reason for that is because you're, you're coming at it from, it's not just a difference in methodology or preference. You're coming at it from a totally different view of where your authority lies. That's very important for you to understand. So in Protestantism, the authority is in Scripture. 
in the Roman church, the authority is not in Scripture. The authority is in a combination of things. The authority is in the Scripture. It's in the Apocrypha. It's in the Pope. It's in the priest. It's in the uh, canonical pronouncements of the church. It's a, there's a whole bunch of sources of authority, right? Whereas that's not the view in the, the three main branches of uh, historic Protestant Christianity. Yeah. Even, I, I remember in South America, even the priest... You're from South America? Oh. Oh. <laughs> Never would have guessed. Yeah. So the priest talked a lot about the social problem in the country, what happened in this moment in the country, how you mm-hmm. have to behave. Yeah. It's not about Christ. Yeah. So that's interesting you should say that because that's called liberation theology. So uh, South American and Central American Roman Catholicism looks very different than European and North American and African uh, Roman Catholicism. There's a, a heavy emphasis on a whole theological system. It's, you can Google it if you want. It's, it's formally called liberation theology. And... Um, the idea is all around how the gospel comes to bear on social issues in the culture. And you can understand why that would be a hot-button, you know, preachable message in an area of the world that has had a lot of political and cultural turmoil for a long time. Right? So as you come up into North America, you get up into Mexico, you get less of that, but you get down into the Central American countries and into... Uh, uh, South America, and it's huge. I did a, a whole course in seminary on liberation theology, right and it's the, it's basically all South American. Right now, with all the problems we have in Venezuela, the church is in the middle between <coughs> government and right. Tradition. Yeah, yeah. Because there's again, there's not a there's not really a separation of church and state. I mean, it may be in, I don't, I don't know all the constitutions of all those countries. It may be on the books, but in practice, it's not, right? It's kind of one and the same. Yeah. So, by the way, we have to, we have to, we have to acknowledge the difference between the official declarations of a particular government that says there's a separation and other nations that, <coughs> sorry, well, there, there's nations that say there's a separation, but in practice, there's not. And there's nations that just acknowledge there is no separation. So, yeah. do, do Lutherans today, for that matter, Catholics today, believe in the separation of church and state? Or is there just kind of excessive So if you were to ask a Lutheran uh, that has... See, again, there's been, there's been fr- fracturing of these denominational groups over the years. So in the, in the Roman Catholic Church, it's a non-issue. They would prefer not, there not be a separation between church and state. And I think biblical Christians would say, well, even if we had our way and we were all Christians, we would still ideally like a separation between church and state. And there's a few out there that don't, don't seem to get that. But there's a few evangelicals that aren't very evangelical, in fact, and don't understand history very well because it seems like they want the prime minister to be a born-again Christian. They want every cabinet minister to be a prime minister, uh, a Christian. They want the mayor to be a Christian. Every police officer, they think that's going to fix everything. It's like they're looking for a theocracy here on earth. That's not reflective of historic 
Anabaptist or Reformed theology really at all. But, and nor, is, nor does it even reek of the, the intentions of like the founding fathers of the U.S., for example. But you get a lot of that south of the border, right? Trying to like, we're like the new Israel. Or were you like a Christian state? No, you're not. You never were. You had a lot more Christians than, than, you, do, than you do now per capita, but it was never founded as a Christian nation. It was founded as a nation that acknowledged the supremacy of God. But it wasn't refined. You could be a deist, you could be a theist, you could be a Unitarian, whatever you want, right? So in the Lutheran church, Lutheranism in Germany is very content not to have a separation, although because of the rise of secularism in practice, most Germans probably wouldn't, don't really want it anymore. Outside of Germany, it's, I don't think it's really a point of conversation because they don't have that option available to them. But historically, you know, Luther would, was very much in favor of that. Or, maybe to be a little more charitable, he certainly was in no rush to separate the church from the state because it was a huge benefit to his movement. And I, I understand that. Like, if you could leverage the powers that be, why wouldn't you? I'd like to leverage the powers that be a little bit more for my own agenda and purposes. But... I wouldn't go so far as to say in an ideal world, I want the state to be the church and the church to be the state. I don't really want that because I, I know the dangers of that and that's not even, in my view, the biblical vision of how, how the world works. Right. So. Yeah, Ian? Basically because of what happened in the fourth century. They were persecuted for 350 years, and all of a sudden the Roman emperor declares it to be the official state religion. And after 350 years of being burned and tortured and impaled on stakes and thrown to lions, all of a sudden the government was on your side, and who of us doesn't like, wouldn't like that kind of comfort? So then you have the entrenching of those ideals over the centuries, and really I would say that... Broadly speaking, that became the primary problem. That there was no separation between spiritual relationship with God, salvation, and the world around you. So we have the church being defined by noble, like noblemen are clergy, clergy are noblemen. You buy these offices like you try to lobby for the presidency of a country or... Uh, diplomatic post. Uh, it, it, just, it just very much became a horizontal kind of Christianity. And it, the catalytic event was Constantine, but then there was just a whole lot of hundreds and hundreds of years of history layered upon that which led to that. So this is helpful too if you ever study the Crusades. And you have people, like you'll, you'll have people say things like, one of the black marks in the eye of Christianity is they went crusading into Muslim lands. And they, they focus on that, right? That the, the Christians went into Muslim lands and they treat that event different than any other global conflict. And the reason why you have to be careful when you start using that language is because you're betraying the fact that you're unaware that everybody in Europe at the time was Christian. 
So you can say, well, the Christians went. But really what you're saying is Europe went. Because in those, in those periods of history, that was the same thing. So it's not really Christianity going. It's people groups that have entrenched within their culture, in addition to many other things, a particular religion, which I think most of us would acknowledge is pretty corrupt, were going down. And likewise, in, in the Middle East, and this has... this. While this has changed in Europe, it's this, this has actually stayed the same in the Middle East today, broadly speaking, if you're Arab or of North African lineage, you are Muslim. That's one and the same. There's not like a, a separation of those in the mindset of the people. So you, I, think, I think I maybe told a story about going to Morocco, right? Several years ago. And I knew it, but I didn't really get it until they started having these conversations with me. It's just so ingrained. I think Ajit, maybe we talked after, or I don't know if you made a comment in class about, you know, if you're Indian, you're a Hindu. Those aren't two different words. But in our culture, those Christian and Canadian, that's not the same description. So the Crusades were Europeans attacking Middle Easterns. And Middle Easterns happen to be Muslim, and the Europeans happen to be Christian, and they, of course, drew from their cultural, political realities and economic realities, as well as elements of their understanding of faith, to justify what they were doing. That's really a more accurate description of what took place. So I don't even like to call them holy wars. <laughs> I think they're cultural wars. There's a lot of wrong done. But it's, it's not just like a, the Christians went and decided to try to wipe out Muslims. That's, that's, just not a, that's a sloppy way of describing it. And so I, I'm, not, I'm never going to apologize for that. Because it doesn't reflect my Christianity. It reflects a culture that was Christianized in some way. I think Glenn... It's separate. So Anglicanism is kind of an anomaly unto itself in that it's influenced by, like, the, 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 the English were influenced by what they saw in sort of mainland Europe. But they didn't break from the Catholic Church over any of those doctrinal issues. They broke almost exclusively because of political issues. And so ang- that's why Anglicanism looks an awful lot like Roman Catholicism, unless you kind of get into the details of things. It looks very much like it. And then fast forward, as recently as in our lifetime, the Evangelical Lutheran Church and the, the historic Anglican communion now have sort of come together. So while they maintain their own kind of denominations... If you're ordained in the Evangelical Lutheran Church, you can just go pastor an Anglican church. And if you're ordained in the Anglican church, you can just go pastor a Lutheran church. It's the same. They, they, they can share clergy and all that because the differences are so minuscule. You're like crop. It's like you're ordained to two different groups. But that's just like its own thing on the side. Which, you know, broadly speaking, we might call it Protestantism, but really it's just it's Anglicanism. It's, it's just like a different thing yet. All right, these are good questions. So, key players. So we have Zwingli. So he becomes a priest. He's preaching 
biblical sermons. He's preaching in 1519. He's preaching in 1520. He's preaching in 1521. He's preaching in 1522. And he's still kind of under the radar. But then he commits an egregious act. March 1522. What season of the year is that? Spring. It's Lent. Very good. So you're actually smarter than him. It's good. Um, so it's Lent. And how'd you know that, by the way? Oh, okay. okay. So it's Lent and Roman Catholicism emphasizing fasting during Lent. Zwingli and 12 other people start eating sausages. It's a true story. They start eating sausages. Yeah, you had a craving. You got. I don't know if they had sauerkraut with it. I'm guessing they did. Maybe some mustard on top. But they started eating sausages, and this infuriated the Catholics. So, this really got put Zwingli on the in the crosshairs, right, of the Roman Catholic Church. Because don't don't forget. By this point, there's a lot of there's a lot of battles the Roman Catholic Church is fighting with reformers and renegade preachers all over the place. So it's not like he's the only guy, right? But this is something a little new. He starts eating sausages during Lent. And now they start listening to his words and his teaching. So Zwingli was int- an interesting guy in that instead of rejecting Roman Catholic teachings that the Bible didn't teach, he actually felt that we should reject anything that the Bible doesn't prescribe. So if it doesn't prescribe it, you shouldn't do it. I feel really uncomfortable with that. I'm just telling you what he he thinks. So it's not just don't do what the Bible bans and do what the Bible encourages, but only do what the Bible prescribes. So we're, we're talking about a pretty narrow view in many respects. So he spoke out against a bunch of different things. And you can guess one of the things he spoke out against by virtue of his actions. So in 1522, the year of the sausage, he (laughs) secretly marries a wealthy widow. And they live together. It's it's well known that they're they're married. They live together. She gets pregnant, probably, I guess it would be the tail end of 1523. And because her child is due within three months. They have the public wedding in 1524. Probably in part so that he wouldn't be guilty of rumors of having a child at a wedlock because he he was married already. And in part because he was starting to preach out against uh, the Roman Catholic ban on uh, priests getting married. So he's he's speaking out against priestly celibacy. So he gets married in 1524 publicly and among the things he's attacking are things that the Roman Catholic Church is holding dear. So he, he starts picking on priestly celibacy, as I've already mentioned, the use of images in churches, icons, stained glass windows, statues, paintings, all that kind of stuff, being concerned that they became too loved, too cherished. People were maybe even in an ill-informed way praying to them or bowing down to them or finding their faith in them. He speaks out against a corrupt clergy, so that sounds a lot like Luther. He speaks out, obviously, against fasting during Lent. 
And he draws the support. So now we're kind of going back a little bit. He draws the support of the men that I, whose names I wrote on the board earlier. Felix Manns, Conrad Grebel, and George Blowrock. Now, these are fairly young guys. And really, he takes them under his wing, you could say, and they become, I don't know if I want to use the word disciples, but they definitely are influenced by him. In his church, he decides to ditch the mass, which is the prescribed way of worshiping in the Roman Catholic Church, and he creates a new common liturgy for his church and the churches that would follow Anabaptist teaching in and around Zurich. So liturgy, basically, for those of you who come from non-liturgical backgrounds, is more or less a prescribed order of worship with certain common elements that would be used in a whole collection of church on any given Sunday, that kind of thing. Certain key readings or just ways of operating. So churches that have prescribed forms of liturgy, they're often called liturgical churches. So he was coming out of a very liturgical tradition, the Roman Catholic Church. So he maintained that, the, the liturgy in, in the church, but he did not go with the Roman Catholic Mass. He created a new common, more simplified kind of language of the people uh, lit- liturgy. Zwingli, while he, unbeknownst to himself, was mentoring Felix Manns, Conrad Grebel, George Blowrock, who would become really founding fathers of the Anabaptist movement because of the baptisms of one another I mentioned a few minutes ago. He actually doesn't get along very well with the Anabaptists. He's kind of a guy unto himself. And one of the reasons why he didn't get along is because, like Luther, he wanted to try to maintain good relationships with the city council and other political leaders. And some would even accuse Zwingli of pushing for a theocracy in Switzerland at the time, a nation ruled under God. So they start to kind of butt heads a little bit. So there's a, uh, they maintain many common beliefs, but there is differences between Zwingli and the Anabaptists. Now there's also differences between Zwingli and Luther, so Luther hears about Zwingli, or Zwingli hears about Luther, I'm not sure who heard about who first. And in 1529, Zwingli actually goes down and meets with Luther in Germany. And they find they have a lot of stuff in common. But what's the thing they cannot agree on? Pardon me? No? Exactly. So why don't you just come up and teach the class? Yeah. So... The primary point of disagreement is what we call communion or the Lord's table or the Eucharist. Right? That's where the primary point of disagreement. So they're, they're basically arguing. And Luther is not a kind guy. Like, he would be the equivalent of like, swearing, using like, foul language, calling this guy names. Like, he's just kind of a rude old man at this time. And so the conversation really doesn't end well. And so what I want to do for a few moments is just kind of step off like the the historical details and describe to you some common beliefs that, and there's obviously more nuances to some of these that I'm going to share tonight because this isn't actually a theology class, but I want to share with you some common beliefs about the Eucharist in order to help you to understand maybe your own tradition and the uh, the debate that was going on at the time. So as I mentioned to you, 
This um, word in English letters, Eucharisto, is the Greek word from which we get the English word Eucharist. And it means literally to give thanks. Okay? So this is the word we're going to use to describe this tonight. I grew up in a tradition you only call it a Lord's Supper or Lord's Table, but I don't really, I don't have a problem with this word or some of the other words that are used to describe it too. So Roman Catholicism. So what is the Roman Catholic view? The Roman Catholic view, and by the way, the, the discussion, the point of difference all revolves around Christ in relationship to the Eucharist. So that's what we're talking about here. I'm not talking about whether you use bread or grape juice or leavened bread or unleavened bread. I'm talking about Christ. So the Roman Catholic view is that Christ, I'm going to just use the historic, for the sake of brevity, the historic key, which is like the historic Christian designation for Christ. So Christ is substantively substantively if you want to use the word objectively that's fine too present in the Eucharist so the Roman Catholic view the bread and the wine literally objectively substantively now hear me clearly on this when they are consecrated by the priest, become the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not before, but when they're consecrated. The Orthodox view, notably like Eastern Orthodox, is that Christ is substantively present. Where these two views diverge is that the Roman Catholic Church is more precise on the when does it happen question. So they believe it happens at the point the priest confirms it. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there's a window of events that are taking place in the liturgy, and they're not prepared to say at what particular point in time in the liturgy the bread and wine substantively become the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's where they differ. It's a minor point, really, but significant to some, I suppose. So the Lutheran view is that Christ is not, so not equals, substantively present. But that his presence is real. So you could call this like the real presence view. So it's called consubstantiation, the fancy theological word for it, meaning that you bring out the bread, you bring out the wine, and while the bread and the wine don't literally become the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would consider that an absurdity, that Christ's presence literally is present in it, around it, under it, literally present. Christ's manifest presence is there in 
the Eucharistic elements. The Reformed view, and this is held by Presbyterians, by various Calvinists, etc., uh, is that he's not substantively present. They would agree with Lutheranism in that Christ's real presence is, but this is where they differ, only potentially available to the participant. So real presence, and you could write potentially available. Now, why potentially? Because it's only available to the faithful, not to the unbeliever. And it's only available to the faithful that has a proper heart. Otherwise, the real presence of Christ doesn't show up. It's not available to you. So you see the difference? So Lutheranism, again, focusing more on the theological, you could say, and not really bringing in, what about the state of mind, the heart, the spiritual status of the participant? Nope, the bread and the wine comes out, Christ's real presence is there, period. It's always there. It's there. Reformers, Calvinists, Presbyterians, no, it's there only if a person is living out their faith, is repentant before the Lord, it's not there for the unbeliever, and in addition to that, 1 Corinthians 11, if you are an unbeliever and you're participating, or you are one of the faithful, but you're not being faithful, you actually are not experiencing the real presence of God, but you're experiencing his real judgment. So there's the warning given. Okay? And then we have the memorialist view. Now, I'm calling it the memorialist view, but really I should call it the Mennonite view, the Baptist view, the Brethren view. Okay? And that is it's only a memorial, meaning that it's just symbolic. So obviously that would be the one that's the simplest. Like it's, 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 pardon my language, but it's drained of the most mystery. There's, there's, it's just, you're just remembering. So if you've been raised in a memorialist tradition, Mennonite church, Baptist, brethren, it's stress. It's just a symbol. It's just a symbol. It's just a memorial. It's just a memorial. We're just remembering. We're just reminding. And we shy away from any talk about Christ's real presence descending in any way, shape, or form. Like about these? Well, I know Jesus said, you know, this is my body. Mm -hmm. I'll do this in memory of me. Yeah. So how do the churches decide? How is the right way to do it? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're asking a question that can be asked of almost anything in Christianity where people have differences of opinion. But this particular issue 
really is more of a, what we call a hermeneutical issue. So hermeneutics is a category of um, Christian scholarship that asks the question, how do we actually study the Bible? How literal, literal should I be? How do I know what the meaning of a word is? How do I study grammar? How do I understand the history, the context? So it's about how do we actually interpret the scripture? And in some respects, like the substantive uh, view, so let's take like, the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox. There's, there's a couple of dimensions here. One of it is a biblical view that it's literal. It says, this is my body, this is my blood. So that's what it is. It's like this is very literal. But there's also, it's, that conclusion is also driven by an, a notion called sacramentalism, which is in a physical world, God uses physical means to sort of dispense grace to people. So the church is very much concerning itself as we're the church, we're Christ's representatives, we have the authority of Christ. How do we dispense grace to the masses? And so this becomes a means of dispensing grace to basically thoughtless people. So then Lutheranism is retaining some of those elements, but reacting to sacramentalism. So it's, in part, it is a, I'm sure Luther had his nose in the Bible trying to study it, but in part, it's, it's almost like an inference that he's drawing from his reaction to the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church. And then the Reformed Calvinist position. Again, some of these are almost like gut feelings, I'd like to say, where they're just looking at the text, looking at the broader purview of Scripture about how God's presence is manifest in his people, and they're studying words. They're, they're, they're disagreeing on this is my body. They're disagreeing on those words. But a lot of it, I would say, is driven to a large degree by a, con- a, pre- a preconceived conclusion that they wanted to arrive at that kind of fit into their broader theological system. Like there's a lot of areas of theology where there are boatloads and boatloads and boatloads of verses that you have to wrestle with to arrive at a particular conclusion. In this respect, you have a very limited number of scriptures that even address the issue. Yeah, understandably. Yeah. I understand that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I understand that. Um, so, just to try to understand what you're asking me. So, Luther, Luther always talked about justification by grace through faith. So, he, didn't, he wasn't doing one or the other. But are you asking me... I'm not really sure what you're asking me. You're going to have to reword it. Okay, okay. <laughs> Like faith is kind of like the means. 
Faith is like the means of receiving grace. But then there's differences among Christians as to who enables the means. So the Reformed Calvinistic camp is, well, God actually enables you to have faith. The Anabaptist camp is no more. That just kind of comes from you, broadly speaking. So when it, both camps, all three camps are agree salvation is by grace through faith alone. They agree on the grace part. They're not so much in agreement on where the faith actually comes from. A Calvinist, so you don't put words in Calvinist's mouth, Calvinists don't believe that we're robots. A lot of people say, oh, Calvin, they believe we're all robots. No, Calvinists don't believe that. But they're, con- they're concerned about maintaining a very, very high and elevated view of God's sovereignty. So that's doctrine number one. We've got to maintain that at all costs. So whenever they hear someone speaking, and if there's anything in the language that kind of brings it back to us, then the Calvinist instantly reacts. So even when you say salvation is by grace through faith alone, where's grace from? Well, it's from God. Where's faith come? Well, I just chose to believe. And they're like, oh, just a second. Okay. Like, I know you're believing, but let's, let's think about where it comes from. We think God, enab- God brings you alive. He enlivens your spirit. He enables you to believe. He puts you in the right circumstance. Like, they all want to put it very much on God. And there's, there's obviously passages of the scripture, like Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, that are wrestled with. So, but like, yes. The Holy Spirit telling me that communion should be um, um, treated a certain way or thought of as a certain way, and that fits right with me. Then. Well, yes and yes and no. Okay, so in theory, yes, but in practice, if two Christians are looking at a particular text of the Scripture and arrive at different conclusions, then they can both claim that it was the Holy Spirit that brought them there, but clearly one's right and one's wrong, or they're both right. They're both wrong, right? Because God is not a God of confusion that's going to give conflicting viewpoints. Well, first of all, the first two are off the charts. They're not even options for us, for the simple reason that Jesus is in the upper room bodily present in one localized spot, and he's saying to his disciples, this is my body, do this remembrance of me. So clearly he's not saying this is my... He's, he's sitting here offering you emblems that were understood to be part of the Passover, and clearly he's not then saying, oh, I'm actually creating some more of my DNA or something and putting it in these elements. So, And, and there's, there's no... The other thing is there's no necessary reason to believe that. Like, There's nothing else in scripture that you're violating by saying that it's other than his actual substantive body and blood. In fact, it creates a lot of problems, really. How do you handle it, when it becomes it, and all that kind of stuff. So in, re- in many respects, the first two were reacted to against by reformers because, and I say this respectfully, but they were considered absurd. They were considered absurd that the, the body, that bread and wine could literally become Christ's body and blood when he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father with his, bo- with his resurrected body. You guys are aware that Christ has his resurrected body. He didn't leave it behind. So 
it's just an absurdity that they just reacted to. And then these guys are kind of wrestling with the details of, of um, like when you're, when you're reading 1 Corinthians 11 or the statements that Jesus made in the upper room, like wh- what does he mean by, by, you know, this is the new covenant in my blood, do this in remembrance. I mean, what does remember mean? Is, re- is remembering merely a rational thing? Or is it also, does it also involve an experiential thing? Well, if you say it's just rational, then you're a memorialist. But if you say remembering biblically is participating in or enjoying the presence of, then you're going to jump up into one of the next two camps. Right? So there's some f- concepts outside of those immediate passages that are informing how you're going to arrive at your conclusion. Yeah, they, so both. So in Lutheranism, physical or substantive presence and spiritual presence. So the, the reformers are saying that's true, but you have to meet certain requirements for that to be true. So it's not automatic. You have to be one of the faithful who's um, right with the Lord. Like, don't go to church and just assume, well, it's there. It's clearly the, the presence of Christ is there. I'm going to grab some and get it. So the reformers are like, no, you're not going to get it if your heart's not right. Does that make sense? So if your heart's not right, it's not going to be available to you. So it's not like a, I'm going to put a quarter in a vending machine and I'm going to get out a gumball. That's, that's the biggest problem with these three. It's more the use of them. It's less of a theological question, more of how you use them. The biggest problem with all three of these is that communion becomes a dispensing machine to dispense grace to you, and it's automatic. These two views are putting stipulations and requirements on the worshiper. Where they differ is the Reformed Presbyterian Calvinists are like, well, Christ's presence is very much... Christ manifests himself in a special way through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through the preaching of God's word. So Calvinists would also apply this basic principle to the proclamation of God's word. And it, Hopefully you're kind of connecting some dots in terms of your own mindset. So those of you that come from a tradition like this probably are also going to consider preaching more of an act of teaching. And those of you that come from this background are probably going to be preaching more as an act of manifest presence. Both assuming that the word of God is preached accurately. Those that are here are going to see baptism as just a symbol. Those that are here are going to see baptism as an opportunity for God's presence to be manifested in a person's life. And the same then applies to, obviously, the Eucharist. So when you come to the Lord's table, are you just thinking back about a historical event? Or are you thinking back about a historical event and literally communing with Christ who's in the room, in the moment, manifesting his presence to you in extra measure? 
So, yeah, John. Yeah, it's a metaphysical question. Mm -hmm. Right. So notice he puts it in your mouth. You don't just pass a tray around and grab it, right? He puts it in your mouth. They move that one out. And like the, the idea of drinking the wine, there's more opportunity for spillage than to drop the bread, right? So that's why historically, there's latitude in the Catholic Church to do otherwise, but historically the Catholic Church didn't give wine to the congregant, they just gave the bread. Yeah. All right, so now that you're all crystal clear on Eucharistic views, <laughs> Let's talk about Zwingli and his relationship with people around him. So picture Switzerland, and Switzerland is divided up into what are called cantons. Have you been to Canton, Michigan? So just add an S. That's how you spell it. So cantons. Canton basically is a member state. We have provinces. A canton is a member state within Switzerland. And they were divided at this point along Protestant and Roman Catholic lines. Because, again, there's no separation of church and state. So you've got Protestant cantons, you've got Roman Catholic cantons. So Zwingli, again, not being a true Anabaptist, wants the Roman Catholic cantons to capitulate and become Protestant. So he makes an attempt, with some success, to block food shipments to any Roman Catholic canton. And you can imagine that there's pushback, war breaks out, and he's actually killed in battle in 1531 at the age of 47. So not a pacifist, stereotypical Anabaptist. His views, though, did influence Anabaptism. They influenced Puritanism later on. So let's talk then about his... Um, uh, we got uh, Gre uh, Conrad Grebel... Felix Mance and George Blowrock. So Grebel refuses to baptize his baby during this period of time. He has to move to nearby Zolikon and forms the first Anabaptist congregation. This is after his baptism. The city council of Zurich threatens to drown any Anabaptist who rebaptizes, which is a curious way of putting people to death for rebaptism, And they do that, actually. They drown many Anabaptists. So basically by 1531, the time of Zwingli's death, Anabaptism has almost been stamped out in Zurich, but it's spread out into the countryside. So Zwingli's off the scene. He does have his writings and his sermons do influence Anabaptism. They obviously influence Reformed theology and later... Christian movements. But really his disciples, those three young men, are really the founders of the Anabaptist movement. And they actually didn't think that Zwingli was working hard enough. So they were kind of, they'd, they'd broken ranks with him early on. So we have three main 
three early Anabaptist groups. We have the Swiss Brethren, which don't really exist today, but their descendants would manifest themselves to us in the Swiss Mennonite Church and the um, Amish. And then we have the Hutterites in Moravia and northern Italy. And then we have the Mennonites in Holland and northern Germany. And again, some of these boundary lines have been redrawn over the last 500 years, but we're using the language of that they would have used back then. So we're going to start with the Swiss Brethren. So Swiss Brethren, they began in Zurich, in Switzerland, thus Swiss Brethren, and they spread out from there. So the founders of those movements included Manns. And this is what I find interesting. These guys died pretty young. So Felix Manns was burned by other Protestants that did not believe in rebaptism in 1527. I think he was born around 1498, so he was like 28 or 29. So that's, that's pretty young, right? To have made that kind of an influence and impact. So he's burned by Lutheran-like, I'm not sure if they're actual Lutherans, but Lutheran-like people who believed in the Reformation, much of the stuff in the Reformation, but they were still tied to infant baptism. So he's burned by, he actually is the first prominent martyr burned by fellow Protestants for his beliefs an Anabaptist burned by fellow Protestants. Conrad Grebel, he dies of natural causes. He actually dies of uh, the plague. I don't know if you call that a natural cause, but he wasn't put to death. He dies by the plague in uh, the year earlier, in, in 1526. So he's also like born the same year. So he's like 27, 28. And George Blowrock makes it to 1529, a couple years later. And he was around 38 years old when he... Uh, dies. So all these men really died between like 28 and 38-ish. So relatively young guys. But they, they successfully founded several Anabaptist congregations. And their emphases included the Bible alone. So sola, fide, or sola scriptura, which was preached very adequately by Luther. Scripture alone. Sola, one. Source of authority is Scripture. And they also emphasized believers' baptism. Now later, the Swiss brethren merged with the Mennonites. So fast forward about 150 years. They more or less merged with the Mennonites. By the, by the 17th century, they'd merged with the Mennonites and they'd adopted pacifism. And uh, out of that movement, a little while later, we'll talk about them later tonight, the Amish also come out of the Swiss Brethren movement. So you don't hear Swiss Brethren being used in too many churches today, but that was a historic key group. Starting in Switzerland, by Manns, by Grebel, by Blowrock. And then we have another group called the Hutterites. And the Hutterites also were Anabaptists. And they, were, they looked uh, to their founder, a man by the name of Jacob, spelt with a K, Hutter, H-U-T-T-E-R. And he lived from 1500 to 1536. So again, didn't live to a ripe old age or anything like that. He was their founder. So Hutter was originally a hat maker from Tyrol, spelt like this. And Tyrol today would be on like the northern border of Italy, just underneath Austria. So he was trained as a hat maker. Jacob Hutter encounters, so he raises a Roman Catholic, 
and he encounters Anabaptism in Austria. So he's moving around, he's kind of like an itinerant tradesman, making hats. And while he is in Austria, he meets Anabaptists, he's influenced by them. Now these people were being severely persecuted by the Habsburgs at the time. You've probably heard of the Habsburg monarchy in Europe. So he becomes an Anabaptist, converts to Anabaptism, and then he quickly starts to become a leader within Anabaptism. So he's sent out to try to find a suitable location for the Anabaptists to move to. And they move a little ways over to Moravia, which is part of uh, Austria. So they move to Moravia. But he continues to, pa- he actually doesn't go with them. He continues to pastor down in Tyrol, like his hometown but he's constantly being hunted by the authorities. And really the only reason why he lives as long as he does is because, well, people are protecting him, kind of tipping him off. The authorities are coming so he can get out of the house. 1533, he goes to Moravia and he unites believers. So he's had a few years of preaching now. He unites believers around common Anabaptist beliefs, very similar to what we're going to see among the Mennonites, but there's a difference. The main difference between the Hutterites and the Mennonites is that he believed that believers, as per Acts 2, should hold all of their goods in common. Very important. So we see that even in Hutterite communities today. So everybody, there's no, it's not your car, your house, your horse. It's our car, our house, our horse. We hold things in common. By 1535... This is just a couple of years later. The Moravian authorities are sick and tired of the Anabaptists and they begin to expel them at risk of death. So he goes back to Tyrol and unfortunately, along with his wife, is arrested by the authorities. They finally catch him. They take him and his wife. They torture him. This goes on, I think, for close to a year. He refuses to recant and ultimately he is burned at the stake with several hundred other uh, Anabaptists for his faith. Groups of Hutterites form communal living communities called Bruderhofs. There's another name for it as well, but that's a common one. Brotherly communities based on Acts 2. Now, I know that in our, I think I maybe even made a passing comment on this on Sunday, one of my sermons, maybe not both, but... There's a, there's a common interest among Christians as to how much of the book of Acts is prescriptive as opposed to descriptive, right? So it's a histor- we know it's a his- historical book, so we read it differently than we read the Gospels because the Gospels are more didactic, like do this, don't do that. But when you're reading the historical books of the Bible, you're always kind of scratching your head thinking, okay, I'm seeing the Christians do this or do that, so how much of it is being prescribed to me and how much of it is just describing maybe the application of certain principles or practices? And so a lot of people, oh, you know, maybe, maybe we should live communally. And that's not off the table. Like, it's not like an unbiblical uh, way of living. But the problem is, with, saying, with trying to make that a prescription for living, is just read a little further in Acts, and there's godly believers who have houses that are inviting traveling preachers and who aren't living in, in more or less communes. So if you see both 
godly Christians living in more or less communes and godly Christians just living in their own houses, inviting people in, then you can't come away from Acts saying, well, that's a prescription for all churches for all of time, right? Nevertheless, they took it as being prescriptive and began to live in communes. Here are some of the things that the, the Hutterites believed in. Extreme passivism. Extreme passivism. So passivism is the belief, not only that you shouldn't go to war, but you shouldn't in any way, shape, or form resist violence. You practice total nonviolence. Someone pushes you down, you just fall down. Uh, someone says you've got to go to war, not going to war. Someone says you've got to pay taxes into a system that's going to go to war, you don't pay your taxes. So you don't contribute to, you don't participate in any forms of violence in any way, shape, or form. You don't defend yourself personally. You don't participate in just war. You don't participate in unjust war, and on and on and on. No, no form of violence is ever acceptable for any Christian under any circumstances. So that was a key value and distinguishing characteristic of the Hutterites, which was also adopted by the Mennonites, but not adopted by uh, the Swiss Brethren, for example, and certainly not adopted by Lutherans, and certainly not adopted by Reformers or Calvinists. So what, would, what happened then, just fast-forwarding, is because they, wouldn't, they were perceived as not supporting the state, they just kept being pushed forward, pushed forward, pushed, like centuries go by, they're pushing them out, we don't want you here, we don't want you here, we don't want you here. So we have multiple instances of the Hutterites being expelled. So they went from Moravia. They went to what we now call the Czech Republic. They went to the Ukraine. They came to Canada and the U.S. with delegations of early Mennonites in the um, middle part of the 1870s. But because of their extreme positions, by, 18, by the 1800s, they estimate that there was only between one and 300 Hutterites alive on the face of the earth in Europe. So they, at the time, living in the Ukraine, were exposed to some Russian Mennonites. And when the Russian Mennonites sent scouts to Canada in 1873 to, and the U.S. to try to find lands that would suit their purposes because the Russian Mennonites were being persecuted by the Russians and so forth, they went with them. And so uh, shortly thereafter, a few years thereafter, there's now 400 moved to Dakota and Montana initially, and uh, other parts of the USA, and then up into Canada. So you're thinking, well, problem solved. No, uh, there's an example in World War I, you know, 100 years ago, uh, two brothers, the Hoffer brothers, died in U.S. prisons after being abused and mistreated physically for refusing military service. So really, they, they would be considered martyrs among uh, modern Hutterite communities today. So 100 years ago, they basically had the tar beat out of them and they died in jail because they wouldn't fight back. So definitely guys that were true to their belief. Estimate, estimates today suggest there's between 40 and 50,000 Hutterites descended from the 400. So again, um, quite the population explosion. Most of them now live in Canada. So probably 75-80% of Hutterites live in like Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, mostly the western provinces. They also have colonies in the U.S. They have formed colonies also in Nigeria, 
and in Australia. And there's a Hutterite uh, colony in Japan composed of ethnic Japanese who have converted to Hutteriteism without actually having an ethnic tie. Now, I want to I write a word in the board, which I think is going to be really, really helpful. We often talk of ethnic groups. So we talk of ethnic groups, right? And when we talk about ethnic groups, what we generally mean is people that have a common genetic DNA. But there's also, and they, and they usually arise from being, well, they're just born in a particular geography and they just you know, keep procreating among themselves and they, they take on certain characteristics, so certain skin colors, certain eye colors, certain height, certain amount of hair, not so much hair, whatever it might be. You just kind of put people in a particular area and boy meets girl and they have babies and that just keeps happening. Those like the genetic uh, pool of information is limited and you have an ethnic group that rises up. But there's also something called a religio-ethnic group. And a religio-religious ethnic group is a group of people that have almost like become an ethnic group because they've been together for so long, but they weren't originally from common ancestors. But they've stuck together for so many generations and so many, through, through so many centuries, that they're kind of like an ethnicity unto themselves. And this is why people are often confused when you say to a Mennonite, well, is, is, is a Mennonite or a Hutterite, is that, like a, is that like an ethnic group or is it a religious group? Well, it's now both. So let's just say... Sunday morning, everybody comes to harvest, and we lock the doors. And we don't let anybody out for 500 years. And whatever human DNA is in this building, that's all that there ever is going to be. So boy meets girl, and we just kind of hang out. Well, over time, right, we, we would become kind of like our own ethnic group. But really, the origin of it is based upon a common religious identity. So my wife, for example, was raised in a Mennonite church. And we've had multiple conversations about this. People ask her all the time, well, is Mennonite like an ethnic group or a religious group? And she never knows. I think it's a both-and, right? Same with the Hutterites. It's like a both-and. So that's kind of how that all happened. So the, the Hutterites are doing quite well. They live in a communal fashion, so they would kind of be with their families more or less for breakfast, depending on the community, but they have common meals uh, for lunch, common meals for supper, divided by gender, you know, guys on one side, girls on the other. They have uh, a heavy emphasis on democracy. Now, democracy is limited to males, so males are allowed to vote, and within the males in a Hutterite community or colony, there are between two and seven between three and seven men that take on special roles or offices by virtue of their age or by virtue of a particular office that would have, like they may, for instance, make a decision to vote on something and then bring it to all the males to vote again. So there is like a kind of a hierarchy, but at the end of the day, it really is a democracy where everyone really is, you know, even Stephen. Everyone is very much equal. So that's the Hutterites. And 
Then we have the Mennonites. Now, Amish are often called Mennonites, but they're not. Amish really come from the Swiss Brethren. So they have certain similarities to Hutterites, but don't call a guy with a black hat in Pennsylvania a Mennonite. He's not a Mennonite. He's Amish, which is a related group, but it's a different group. So in the Lower Rhine in Germany, a man was born in about 1496. His name was Menno Simons. Now, Simons, I think, was actually his father's name because back then they hadn't quite worked with the whole last name thing, so you kind of adopt the name of your father as your last name. And he lived through to 1561. He started off as a priest. He was ordained around 1516, about one year before the Reformation, into the Roman Catholic Church. But he became an Anabaptist. And he later recalled that when he was a priest, he never read the Bible because he didn't want the Bible to pollute his beliefs. But as an Anabaptist, he started to read the Bible. Even before he started to read the Bible, though, in his conversion, he started to wonder if infant baptism was biblical. So he began to ask around some of his mentors, some of his teachers from university and whatnot. He began to study it. And he was eventually exposed to a bunch of uh, Anabaptists who were living in Munster at the time, the Munsterites. This is around 1531. Now, he appreciated many of their views, but the Anabaptists in Munster at the time were still very okay with violence. So they were attacking convents, they were attacking Roman Catholics, they were kind of following in the trail of Zwingli. That's, you know, food blockages, let's maneuver politically. Again, just a very different point in time. So he, he appreciated much, but not all of what they did. One of his brothers was an Anabaptist who was given to violence. In 1535, his brother was killed, uh, put to death as an Anabaptist for his part in violently attacking Roman Catholic establishments. So Anabaptists, again, at the time... They were participating in violence and war, and as a result, hundreds of Anabaptists were being killed in retaliation for the violence they were waging against the Roman Catholics. So they didn't start out real passive. A notable Anabaptist was a guy by the name of Jan of Leiden. John or Jan, you'd write it out, J-A-N. In 1534, he's an Anabaptist. He takes control of the city of Munster, And he basically runs a theocracy. So he appoints himself as king of Munster, buttresses it with his biblical theology, kind of bring back the Old Testament. And he seeks to create a kingdom on earth where Christ is reigning. So he believed in a literal millennium and believed that uh, the millennium was going to come to earth and it came to Munster and he was like the replacement for King David. He was kind of a messianic figure. And he was basically ruling Munster as uh, a spiritual lead, leader. Now, of course, conveniently, he also extracted a few other things uh, to his own delight from the Old Testament, including polygamy. That he thought that was pretty, pretty good. And eventually, he was, uh, after a couple of years, he's captured, he's executed. Now, this is called the Munster Rebellion. So we have these extreme, almost like fanatical Anabaptists who want to bring the kingdom of Christ to earth, create a theocracy. They're committed to believer's baptism. They're not created to 
they're not, they're not committed to uh, a pacifist position. So back to Menno Simons, he's seeing all this, witnessing all this. A couple years later, by 1536, he experiences a sorrowful conversion. He's sorrowful for his sins, and he joins the Anabaptists. And he goes around, he's already a priest, so he just becomes a pastor, a preacher. And he goes around at night, he starts to preach in villages under the cloak of darkness, the Anabaptist message. Now, he strongly advocated things that had not been advocated by early Anabaptists. So he's like, hey, we've got to get the church and, church and state thing sorted out. So we're taking a, I'm taking a strong stance. There's a separation biblically between church and state. So that was his message. And we have to be uh, people of peace. So he advocates pacifism. And then he also continues to toot the Anabaptist horn of believer's baptism. So he's... He's with the early Anabaptists on believer's baptism. He's not so much with them because some of them were still into church and state or one. Let's create a theocracy. And he's not with them on the issue of violence. So fast forward, Mennonites today uh, still take up a message of pacifism. It's kind of hard to say, I'm a Mennonite and I'm okay with going to war. That's just one of the hallmarks of historic Mennonite teaching is that you don't go to war, um, you, they practice baptism, uh, baptism is always tied to repentance, and separation from the world. So when I met my Mennonite wife, there's many things that the Lord used her to sort out of me, and there's a few things maybe I had an influence on her, so I'll tell you a quick story. Um, when we first became parents in 1998, fast forward a couple years, little Josiah, he liked Lego. And um, so we'd buy him these Lego packages. Well, my wife still had a lot of Mennonite in her. So she would scour through those Lego packages and remove any weaponry. I'm talking like a half-inch gun, you know, a three-quarter-inch knife. She'd sort that all out. You're not playing with any weapons. That is wrong. Put it all the side on it. So then um, he just finds sticks, right? And create guns and swords and all that. So eventually she realized she lost that, but that was her. She thought it was conviction, but really it was her Mennonite heritage just kind of coming through there. Okay, so that's, that's a good story. Do you want to offer any defense of that? Or? You're good? Okay. okay. She's being a good pacifist. That's just what not reacting, just kind of. Okay, so I want to make some comments about the Amish, and then I'll sort of blend together some modern comments about the state of those movements today. So the Amish really grew out of the Swiss Reformation, again, often called Mennonites, but really with their own distinctives. So they stressed simplicity, a simple lifestyle. They stressed pacifism as well, like the Mennonites, and to an even greater degree than the Mennonites, resisting technology. Now, the Mennonites also resisted technology. So my wife also has uncles, so brothers of her mother, who uh, in the 19, late 1950s and early 1960s broke with the Mennonite colonies that they were in in Mexico and moved thousands of people down to Bolivia because there was a dispute in the church about the use of rubber tires. And it created a massive rift in all kinds of families and split the churches right down the middle. Because some of them felt they should be using steel tires and some felt they should be using rubber tires. 
And, you know, in talking to some of her relatives, it was interesting because they said once they got on the boat to go to Bolivia, some of them were actually writing letters back on the boat, repenting for having left. But at that point, you know, the, the, the ship's headed in one direction. So it's just interesting of things like that that we would consider really not all that important have actually split communities of believers right down the center. It's just interesting how, I think we always need to think about this. The things that are like huge deals to us, are they huge deals because of our culture? Or are they actually huge deals because of something in scripture that we're trying to maintain? I think we've got to think about that a little bit. Nevertheless, the Amish uh, stress simplicity, pacifism, and resist, resisting technology. They are allowed to hold private property. So this is where they differ from the Hutterites. But they do live in close-knit communities like the Amish. So originally, the reason why the, the Amish was uh, started, or the, the origins of the Amish, is there was a split between two Anabaptist groups in Switzerland. And basically there was... Anabaptists, and then there were extremely conservative Anabaptists. And the extremely conservative Anabaptists were following the teachings of a man named Jacob Ammon. So, double M, A, double N. Ammon, Amish, that's where it comes from. So Jacob Ammon was born in around 1644. So this is, we're now moving about 100 years later, right? Over 100 years from the Reformation. So the Amish were a later group coming out of the Swiss Brethren. He, uh, He converted from Roman Catholicism to Anabaptism sometime after 1670. And best we can tell, he was totally illiterate because... All of the documents that bear his inscription only have his initials. Like, I didn't even think he was able to write his name. And the, the three or four letters that exist from him, it's in a different handwriting, so he probably had to dictate it to somebody. So he wasn't literate, but he started preaching as an ordained uh, Anabaptist minister. But clearly wasn't able to read the Bible, for example. There's actually very little known about his, his beliefs, but what we do know is he was extremely firm, he was extremely resolute, and following biblical teachings. He was probably a little bit like Luther, kind of rude, like a real strong-willed man. He believed very much in forsaking the world. He had like zero room on the fringes for any sort of compromise in any believer's life, and he advocated believer's baptism. But we would say he was incredibly legalistic, like incredibly legalistic. He believed in radical conversion, radical transformation, and radical discipleship. Now, I believe in all of those things in an ideal world. But I'm quite happy if there's conversion and a transformation and discipleship, even if it's not always super radical. But for him, it was like, you've got to go 100% or you're not even a believer. So he advocated a simple dress. Things he made issues of, if a man had long hair, he's not a believer. If a man trimmed his beard, he's not a believer. Now, the missing mustache came later because he actually had a mustache. But like, he'd freak out on you if you didn't have a full beard as a man or if your hair was a little bit long. 
he clashed with the Swiss, Swiss brethren, and basically it all boiled down to they just thought he was too strict. So this is around 1693 and following. There's several years. He clashes on matters of dress. He wants to see foot washings prescribed. Um, then there's a debate. I can't remember the terminology, but there's a debate over how friendly the Anabaptists should be to non-Anabaptists that have helped to rescue Anabaptists from persecution. So sympathizers. So let's say there's Lutherans or other Protestants, even Roman Catholics, that don't believe the Roman church should be killing Anabaptists, so they're like helping them or harboring them or helping them get away or supporting them financially. So obviously because there was a lot of people doing that, many of the mainline Anabaptists were sympathetic toward them and appreciated them and considered them, you know, maybe not crystal clear in their doctrine, but true believers even. And he's like, no, they're not, they're not true believers. We have to separate ourselves from them. So extreme separation. And uh, he basically felt that, like his list of who should be excommunicated from the church is a very long list. He just had very little flexibility. So there was actually a big kerfuffle at one point. He just excommunicated everybody in the room, and then, I don't know, maybe they excommunicated him, and then later on he recanted and thought it was a little heavy-handed. But the breach was formed. So that really, his followers became the Amish. So they were Swiss brethren who then migrated through Europe, different countries over the next several generations, and eventually... Obviously, we know a large group of them reside in Pennsylvania and in Ontario and other related areas. So, t- common beliefs. Here are some common beliefs of the Amish. Some of these are shared by other Anabaptist groups as well. So, one would be faith alone. So salvation by grace through faith alone, but without any assurance. So you can never know. In fact, Amish would say, if you say I'm definitely going to heaven, that's arrogant. So it's not really even a... Like people often debate the eternal security or eternal assurance issue on theological lines. Amish really debate it more on the lines of that's arrogant. We're not going to teach that. We're not going to preach that because that would be arrogant. You can never really know, even though it's by faith alone. Secondly, radical, we'll underline that word, separation. Now, other Anabaptists and Reformers would say radical separation from state. But the Amish add, and from society. So radical separation is not just separation from church from state. It's separated from separation of believers from everybody. Period. So you form a very self-sufficient community. With regard to evangelism, zero. Zero evangelism. Not only do Amish not evangelize, they generally don't accept converts. So zero evangelism. Procreation. Yeah. So 
they do believe that you're supposed to model the virtues of Christ in society from a distance. But they're not interested in evangelizing society. Yeah. So that's why you have very few, if anybody actually makes it in. It's just a different way of thinking. And then they have something called the, and I don't know how this is exactly pronounced, but the Ordnung. Now the Ordnung is a set of beliefs that govern behavior, but it's not written. The Ordnung is an oral set of beliefs, an unwritten code of conduct that governs, governs life and behavior. It governs dress, it governs the use of technology, it governs diet, it governs religious matters, and it's not written, it's just passed down, it's taught in their language from one group to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. By the way, a lot of these groups, like Mennonite groups or Amish groups, back in Europe at the time, there were, you could say, more languages and dialects of language. Language wasn't as standardized at the time, so there was different kinds of German and all that. So they, they, uh, they would, they would, as they moved from state to state, because of persecution, they would use a particular dialect, whether it had Swiss roots or German roots or an overlap, and they would add different elements to it depending on the country they're in. So if in the Ukraine they're going to add elements, they're adding Russian elements, they're adding English elements. And so these groups basically speak their own languages that have some historical similarity to other languages but are, are different. So uh, a lot of the Mennonites speak Plakdeutsch, which is a basically called uh, meaning like low German, but it's not really German. Like it doesn't sound like German. It doesn't read like German. It's 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 a it's a dialect from you know where where uh, basically northern Germany and the Netherlands came together. It has Dutch influences. It has some German in there. It has maybe some Frisian and other mixture. It's its own thing. And then likewise, the Amish would speak their own version of Dutch, but it's different. So there's just different. Uh, Words, different language, different grammar, different sentence structures. And again, it's because they're eth ethno-religious connections that have just kept them together for a long, long time. Okay? So those are some common beliefs among the Anabaptists. And then let's finish with just an overview of commonly held Anabaptist views, and then I'll make some comments about where these groups have ended up over time. So commonly held Anabaptist views. So Pick any of these groups. So you have Swiss Brethren coming out of them, the Amish later on, you have Mennonites, you have Hutterites. Commonalities, historically, there's always new groups forming that have different views on things, but historically is a rejection of swearing oaths. So historically, Anabaptists, you'd never be a police officer, you'd never be a civil magistrate, you would never be a soldier you would never be a politician of any sort because all of those would require you to swear an oath and you don't do that because that ties you to this world and you never want to put yourself in a position for that. Uh, secondly, a principle of love and nonviolence. So with the exception of some of the early Anabaptists, all Anabaptist groups today stress pacifism. 
in, in different ways. Again, there's individuals within those churches that might not. But as a whole, they come together on the principle of love and nonviolence. Third, they emphasize congregational government. You're not going to find elder-led churches. You're not going to find Presbyterian models of church governance in any Anabaptist tradition. So the congregation votes on things, the congregation kind of rules. And this is all this kind of democratic, like spread it out. Nobody, it's arrogant if anybody kind of steps up and takes a position of authority. Everything's kind of even Stephen. It's a real, real emphasis on basically democracy. So that democratic element coming out of the Reformation has had an impact through the Puritans, for example, notably on the uh, United States of America and their emphasis on democracy, which is often generically couched in in uh, unalienable human rights, but it actually has a theological trail back to the time of the Reformation. It's really more of a philosophical construct. And then fourth, they would agree on religious liberty, which includes the separation of church and state. So every person needs to kind of make the decision to follow Christ. Okay, so those are commonly held Anabaptist views. Here's the reality, though. Because they're all marked by uh, fragmentation from the church, from governing bodies, and from society, all of these groups have strayed pretty hard into legalism and isolation. So pretty much all the descendants of the Mennonites today and um, the Hutterites today and Anabaptists, they would recognize or not recognize legalism and isolationism as being something that needs to be fixed, or they would just continue to cherish it. So while there's legalism in other kinds of churches, it tends to be very much alive and well in um, other groups. I was talking to my sister-in-law actually last week, and you know, we're just talking about cultural issues, and she's from a Mennonite background, goes to a Mennonite church, and she's, she's a really good thinker, and she, she made an interesting comment. She said, you know, as a Mennonite, one of the things I've realized is Mennonites generally feel they're inferior to other people because they're sort of isolated and off to the side culturally, but they feel superior to everyone else in terms of their morality. I just thought that was kind of an interesting insight, that they kind of know they're, they're off to the side, they're not in the central stream of society and sometimes then you can kind of experience that sense of aloneness or isolation but there's a spiritual there's like a spiritual arrogance to it you know we're, we're a little more pure than the rest of you you know we're 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 a little more like new testament or early church like than the rest of you i just thought that was a good insight uh, into that particular branch Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a, a gradient. Like let's say let's take the Mennonites. Cause I'm more familiar with them. The Amish, I think, are more alike. 
and the Hutterites are more alike, but the, the Mennonites are more fragmented. So you have, like in Ontario, even in our county, you have old colony. And the old colony dress very different. They're very conservative. They, they look conservative. They're very German-sounding when you speak to them. But they're also very far removed from the gospel of grace. It's very much about works. And if you meet a old colony person that's born again, that's like the exception to the rule. There are born-again people in the uh, old colony church, but they're the exception to the rule, including their ministers. So my sister-in-law's father was an old colony minister. And she doesn't believe he was saved until about the last two years of his life, even though he ministered for his whole life in the old colony church. And then you have various other, like you have the General Conference Mennonites, and then you have like the Evangelical Mennonite Mission Church, or the Evangelical Mission Mennonite Church, there's two different groups. And then you have Mennonite Brethren that don't really even look like Mennonites. So uh, those would be more on the evangelical side. But they would maintain as a baseline a lot of those core elements, like the pacifism, the emphasis on believers' baptism, the principle of love, not swearing oaths. And, but because of the history of being separate and being isolated, as a general statement, again, speaking in generalities, you're going to have less clarity on justification and sanctification in Anabaptist churches. Like, there's a little more fuzziness in a lot of Anabaptist churches about the, the, how it works in faith, kind of like what is their relationship? Or, like, is baptism the means of being justified, or does it follow somehow? There's, just, there's a lot more fragmentation, lack of clarity on those things. Because the emphasis more is upon the discipleship side or the lifestyle side or towing the line of whatever the rule book or unwritten or written rule book is. So it's it just more, it's appreciated because they're very much concerned with the practical. But I would say they probably need to spend more time over here thinking about the theological. Likewise, sometimes Reformed churches are really theological. We're Calvinists. But our kids sleep around with their girlfriends and boyfriends and they're addicted to tobacco and alcohol and they're promiscuous and we don't really spend a whole lot of time talking about that. So there, there's kind of those extremes, right? And I think we can kind of learn to try to bring it back to a biblical balance. Yeah. I, I just think it's really helpful to uh, know a lot of this stuff because it really gets you doing some soul searching about your own perspectives and your own background and people you know and the, the tradition you come from and, I'm just looking around like we have Roman Catholics and Baptists and Gospel Halls and Brethren and Apostolic and uh, Mennonites and, you know, there's a Pentecostals and United Church, maybe a few more. Have I missed any? What's that? Church of Christ, Anglican. Really, Chris is the only guy that grew up in the true church. <laughs> well, it was a Bible church, right? Yeah. So you just think about all these different backgrounds that you have, and you know, we, we might be apt to say, well, I just believe what I believe because it's right. And that's what the Bible says. But we just forget about how much our grid is influenced by other factors. And it's, it's I don't... I think in a lot of movements, it's less, it's less about believing something that's wrong and it's taking something too far. 
And then in addition to that, forgetting about certain things you need to be thinking about. Right? So we're forgetting about... So if this is the list, we're only thinking about this much of the list. And then within this list, we're taking some of it too far or not far enough. And that, that's what creates like a brand of Christianity that probably isn't super balanced. So the theologian in me would like to say it's just about theology, but I'm not, I'm not sure it is. I think that there's a lot of historical things, things going on there. Okay, a couple quick comments, then we're done. Some teach work salvation, others remain evangelical. I guess I've kind of already said that, but I wrote it down. So the, in, you're not gonna, I don't think you would ever walk into any Mennonite, Hutterite, or Amish church and have them say you're saved by works. I don't think you would ever hear them say that. They would say you're saved by faith alone. But they're not living that way. They're not really acting that way. It's more trusting in self-righteousness or goodness. And then the third negative is just a lost zeal for evangelism. So most of these groups are growing by procreating. They're not growing by evangelism. They're not growing by you know, reaching lost people. They tend to hunker down and like you're in the Hutterite church because that's your like, ethnic group now. Or you're in a Mennonite church because that's your ethnic group. Or you're in the Amish church because that's your ethnic group. So that's, that's where these groups that really fought for the purity of the gospel early on have kind of lost their way and have become stagnated. So hopefully there's some lessons for us to learn there because uh, our church is in part a descendant of the Anabaptists as well as the Reformed Church, as well as the Lutheran Church. But we need to kind of think about how the negatives affect us and then capitalize upon the positives as well. Okay? Have a good night.